You're listening to IoT Leaders, a podcast from SI that shares real IoT stories from the field about digital transformation swings and misses, lessons learned, and innovation strategies that work. In each episode, you'll hear our conversations with top digitization leaders on how IoT is changing the world for the better. Let IoT Leaders be your guide to IoT, digital transformation, and innovation. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the latest episode of the IoT Leaders podcast, the podcast where we try and shine insight and light on the issues surrounding the complex world of IoT. And I'm absolutely delighted in this episode to introduce someone who I've worked with in a previous life, but we'll come on to that, the CEO of Relayer, Joseph Bruner. Joseph, great to see you. How are you keeping? Uh, uh, Good, and I'm excited to have that discussion with you. I'm, I'm always excited to talk to you. Yeah, who knows where we're going to go. Um, I see. I, I, <laughs> I have no idea where this is going to go. You know, I did mention in the intro that we've worked together. And, um, you know, when I'm asked about serial entrepreneurs, I always say, well, A, God damn it, how do they do it? I'm really jealous. And B, do I know any? And I say, well, I do know one very well, uh, Joseph Bruner. So, Joseph, just for our listeners who perhaps might not be familiar with your global fame and track record, um, uh, can you just maybe explain a little bit about your history? Yeah, sure. I will keep it short so we can focus on, on more important topics because <laughs> this is not about me. You know, I love building companies. Um, I do it since the age of 16, actually. The interesting thing, and maybe that's, that's of relevance for the discussion today, is the starting point of my career was actually a market transformation. And, you know, one not too dissimilar to the one that we're seeing today. Um, my parents are craftsmen, actually bakers, um, and we had our own bakery. And back in the days, um, this is when supermarkets started to bake their own bread and the price point was just going down and um, they got disrupted, right? And uh, they, didn't, they didn't survive uh, financially, right? And economically. So we lost our house and that was my, it's still my inner pain and my drive and my nucleus. And that's how I got started. And this was with 16. And then with 18, um, I could buy them uh, a new house, which is still my, the biggest thing for me. Wow. And they still live in, the, in this house. And it's obviously, as you can imagine, the emotional hub for me and the source of a lot of inspiration and power. But that, then, you know, I didn't stop, right? And I, I had fun. And obviously, I, I, I have to say I'm a high school dropout uh, as I started with 16. So there was not another career that I could envision for myself and i you know i stood with it and uh, i love it um, it's my passion and how many so far without going through the four this is number four i hate you already i just want to have it for the record i i uh no. you know and uh we knew each other when uh, i was at cisco and cisco acquired one of your uh, companies but now relayer relayer is firmly in the uh digitization space of which iot is a key component and so, um, and, I, and you guys are really interesting in that you have uh, not just what you do and your clients, but you, uh, and you've been bought by Munich Re. Uh, so congratulations, you sold that one, uh, $300 million, if I recall, not too shabby, as we say, but you have a very, very interesting USP. And I, and I just have not seen anyone else even attempt this in the, in the market. So what, what's Relayer all about and what's your uh, USP? So we are about keeping our customers relevant, right? So we talked about transformation and how market transformations really killed the business of, our, of my parents. And, you know, that's not unique to my parents, right? So market transformations 
are either a huge opportunity or a threat, right? And if you change and you adapt, the opportunity is massive, but you got to change and adapt, right? And the reason why it really exists is we want to keep our customers relevant. That's our purpose, our vision, our mission, why we get up in the morning. How do we do this? Um, we, we try to understand the opportunity with our customers, try to understand if we can solve it and address it with technology and what the outcome of that technology deployment would be, the business case, the business outcome, and then we guarantee it, we underwrite it. Right, so right, and, and let's just hit pause because you you say it so quickly and like it's no big deal, but but I just want to pause and go. You underwrite, you guarantee a business outcome. No, nobody does that. What? You, how, how, come on, how how do you do that? Well, how do we do that is a different question to how do we get there, and maybe we 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 start with the journey, because the journey is I think a description of the complexity we see in the market. Because there's, you know, there's so much complexity in all these different puzzle pieces, right? You want to transform your business digitally, you know, your mining company, a retail. I mean, just name it. Every company is impacted by the transformation going on. And it's so complex, right? You have security, connectivity, devices, AI, and you're just overwhelmed as a, as a business executive. So, and we at really we are a technology company. At, at the very core of everything we do, we have technology. So we tried to sell technology to our business executives and they were overwhelmed with it. And then we, you know, during the sales process, we thought, okay, let's, let's take out the complexity and let's focus on the outcome. What do we want to achieve when we deploy the technology? What's the outcome? Why do we do this? What's the business case? And then once we understood this, we, we, we said, oh, that's pretty attractive. <laughs> Uh, we want a you know piece of the pie. How do we get a piece of the pie whilst also making the customer successful and taking the fear off the table? And we said, you know what, screw this. Let's just guarantee it. You know, we take all the risk. I mean, we're entrepreneurs. Right? Our, our business is taking risks, essentially, right? That's that's why we get started. And there's another you know a tribe out there which you know whose business is taking risk, and these are insurance companies, right? That's also what they do. Underwriting something is taking risk of somebody else's balance sheet or life and take it on your balance sheet. So here you are. It's a perfect match if you think about it that way, right? From a 30,000 feet perspective, which brings me to the how do we do this? We use an insurance company in the beginning as a partner, later on as an investor, now as our um, holding company. We use their, their capacity, their balance sheet, their skill set, the data to guarantee the promises that we make to our customers. It, it it sounds so simple, and yet it it's clearly not. How did it come about? Did you uh, approach them, or uh, did a client sort of? Often a client's a marriage broker in alliances in, in tech industry. They bring the partners together. Uh, but but uh, can you shed any light on how it came about? Did they have this brilliant insight, and they found you, or what's the story? Yeah, uh, I would love to claim uh, the fame, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> So what we did is, you know, obviously, Relay is a journey. It's not a company. It's a journey. And when we started off, we had, you know, a cloud platform and we love technology. So we, you know, we tried to sell technology and it failed miserably. It was, it was a, a, I call it the death by pilot experience. You know, 100 grand here, 150 there. And you don't get it to scale. And said, man, why can't I scale the business? And, you know, a thousand reasons, complexity, business cases, politics within companies. I mean, I, 
fear. I could just name a trillion reasons. And now fast forwarding, you know, on the journey, the outcome is guaranteeing the outcome. But then, you know, my, there were a lot of steps in between. And one of the steps in between was that I said, I need to complement our technology stack because we started off as a middleware. So I needed edge capabilities and I needed AI. So I wanted to buy two companies. And one of the companies that I wanted to buy was a device management company, which was actually the foundation of GE Predicts you know, larger than Relay, more revenues, more people. I said, I need to buy them, um, but I don't have the money. So I needed to raise money to buy them. And one of the sources that I talked to was Munich Re. And um, so I explained my vision to them and the hypothesis. And then they said, did you ever think of underwriting, you know, your business? So they just asked that, yeah. Yeah, and I said, can you explain under yeah. the underwriting process to me? Because again, I'm a high school dropout, right? I mean, I know nothing. And they explained it to me. And then I said, holy cow, that might be the biggest accidental, you know, uh, wisdom that somebody ever, you know, Drop presented to me. Yeah. 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 And they, I think they didn't know what they do, what they did. Um, so I, you know, and I, I was so pumped and excited afterwards. And I think they were too because they invested. And then, then we started to, to poke around a little bit and play around. You know, we, we did little, you know, in the beginning, we only guaranteed, you know, risk worth 500,000 and then a million. So we did baby steps, right? Uh, we, we tried to learn. We tried to adapt, you know, in the insurance underwriting process with the promises that we make, the guarantees that we make, because we were very broad in the beginning. Now we are really focused on industrial subscription equipment as a service pay use. Right. So we'd be, we, we were, you know, now we are, you know, um, laser focused and we do rifle shots. But in the beginning, we were pretty broad, but it was a learning experience. And they as an investor, Minigree as an investor, did a tremendous job educating us and our customers. And it worked so well that they said, you know what, we need to own you because we are impacted by market transformations as well. And insurance won't be the same yeah. in five years, but you could be a great future right, for us. You know, you're an option. Um, and that's how we became part of Munich Re. And especially as if, um, and I did spend some time talking to reinsurance uh, companies and uh, in the US, uh, HSB as well, which is part of the Munich Re group. And one of the things that they said to me, was it, I started asking them about how do you price premiums? I just thought it was this fascinating process. I actually thought, and I don't mean any disrespect to the insurance companies, but I actually thought there was some really smart, complicated algorithms and and that there were you know, massive insights and perhaps AI and quants and you know almost like financial trading. And it turned out it wasn't like that. It was based on um asset classes as a, as I'm sure you know. I mean if you take boilers that that are 20 years old and they're in buildings and there's 20, 30, 40,000 of them out there, they know how many claims they've had. So basically they've got a a uh, a simple risk profile of x percent of boilers uh, make a claim and um, the average payout is y but and then they have these huge tables on risk but but then as each of these products going back to iot as each of these products start becoming smart and legacy enabled the amount of data and the granularity that you can get from this data is is significantly greater and so your point about digitization and it is really important because what they were saying to me is that, uh, you know, them and other reinsurance companies is that 
the the new entrants in their industry are actually going straight for this smart reinsurance uh, market with collecting the data. And so it's in their interest, not just to sell more insurance, but to actually get more data to price that insurance better, isn't it? It is, and, and uh, there's there's a lot of really interesting facets around this story, and you know you're, you're spot on, right? So you you back in the days, people had so much respect for insurance companies, and they thought there was magic magic happening in the machine room. And now you you know you're, you're absolutely right. With data, they become even better, right? But there's a different side of the coin, and that is. Specifically, when you think about predictive maintenance, you know, the reason why you need insurance is because you don't know when your line is going to be, you know, when it's running, when it's breaking down. You don't know what outage you're going to face. So, but now your customers, insurance customers, start to implement predictive maintenance solutions. Then they go like, you know, I know when my line is going to run and when, when I will uh, face uh, a you know issue or an equipment breakdown scenario or something. Do I really need that insurance uh, policy? And if I do, how much am I willing to pay for it? Because my risk is getting smaller because I'm getting smarter. So you know, with with technology, you're right. The insurance companies become smarter, but the customers as well. So yes. you see, almost like a transfer of power. Yes. So that being said, makes it really interesting you know, for insurance companies to do more tech and own a company like we do. But the underwriting process is changing. So what we what we start doing now is crazy stuff like guaranteeing revenues, guaranteeing or, you know, insuring companies against market risks and stuff like that, right? And that's the next generation. And that's why it's so exciting, right? Because it's so new and um, nobody knows where this is going, but it's certainly an exciting journey. You know, it, we've talked a lot about, you know, in this podcast series and just in general about nobody knows where it's going. You know, the analogy being this is this is even beyond uh, the Internet in, you know, 97, 98. We knew it was it could do new things, but we had no idea where it was going. And now we look back and think, wow, we had no idea these business models would be created and disrupted. And what you're talking about here is things like the, you know, the disintermediation of the supply chain and the transfer of power to the consumer, because when the consumer has the data, the 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 the, uh, the 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 brand itself of the big companies starts to decline as an asset. You know, I always deal with a certain company because they're known, they're trusted, they're big. But once the customer's got the data, then the the power starts to shift to the customer, and so that will create entrepreneurial opportunities, not for a, just a, a whole series of startups, but for big companies. And and in the case of Munich Re. I must admit, when I heard about it, I remember I was in an airport when you phoned me and I said, Munich Re, you know, all credit to them as a such a big company uh, to actually uh, be so innovative. So, so let's go on. I'm sure people are absolutely fascinated uh, listening to this because you are the le- clear leaders in this space and we don't know where it's going to go, but we know it's going to be huge. So maybe you can double click and get down into the how because, you know, what? I was going to say to you, what is the biggest mistake you see? I think you've already answered it. This is not about technology. Technology is kind of down the line, isn't it? I mean, it, yes, it results in technology, but technology is down the line. So, you know, you have a client and the client wants to either disrupt or protect themselves from disruption or ideas. You know, 
you you really starting off at the business level, aren't you? I mean, you must like business. You're not a global system integrator, but you're not an IoT company. You're you're you kind of like a in my mind like a a mini McKinsey, but you're not you're none of these things. So you have a very interesting profile of people that work for your company. Yeah, and and we need that, right? We, that that profile is is so critically important, right? Because while there's great hype and um, aspiration around the potential of the IoT market, I think there's also frustration as it didn't take off as you know aggressively as you know some hoped, right? And um, there are reasons for that, and you know for us the focus on on business and the business case is so, so important because at the end of the day, it's all about the numbers, right? Does it make sense? It's not about the, it's not a beauty contest in terms of technology and it's not, not a feasibility test. Can I do this, right? It's about, does it make sense? And there's a, there's a few questions that are really, really important. And one is, you know, how can I make my customers more successful? And I think everybody totally independent of where you are in the supply chain, in the ecosystem, that's the key question. And, and just for clarification, are you talking about your, your customers' customers or Relayers' customers? I'm talking about everyone, right? At the, uh, everyone needs to, because we are all serving our customers, and that's why we exist, right? Our customers might change, right? Uh, you know, if you think about very complex production processes or supply chains, you will see you have 10 different project steps or you know, different, you know, 20 different players in a market from an idea to a product, from an idea to a building, from an idea to a pizza, right? Delivery, supply chain, production, you know, support, just name it. But there's one customer, there's one person, one entity at the end of the line who pays. Everybody else in between is focused on delivering something to the customer, the end customer. Let's call it the end customer. For the sake of simplicity, but there is, you know, in, if a supply chain or an ecosystem has ten different steps, you probably have eighty different customers in between, right? Customer vendor relationships. Yes. So what you have to do, I think, and you mentioned this, the transfer of power. What you have to do is totally independent to where you are in that process chain. It's like, okay, who is the end customer? The one who is getting the equipment, the gear, the parts, the car. The, the transportation service, just name it. And, you know, what is the problem of that entity? And how can I make that entity, that company, customer more successful? And then you try to come up with a solution for the problem that, you know, the end customer or the customer, I'm not talking about consumers, I'm talking about industrial customers. You know, you're trying to come up with a solution and then that's the business case. And then you go, okay, now I solve it more efficiently than today by using tools such as technology, such as underwriting, such as finance. And this is where the uniqueness that we have comes in, but I don't want to talk about us, uh, but about the market, because you need people that understand their business case and how to shape it. So we have the business case and we go like, okay, we can solve that problem more efficiently for that customer and can make that customer more successful. And this is, you know, in the context of equipment as a service, there's this, you know, unknown or there's, there's a question that I'm getting asked all the time is, how can you make your customer more successful, the customer of your OEMs, as an example, more successful, but how at the, in the same time, how can the OEM make more money? 
It's because you cut out eight other players of that market and you eat their lunch. You know, there's no services companies anymore. You know, there might be, you know, different facets of supply chain of other satellite companies that are there to support the process. So you're trying to identify inefficiencies in a market, come up with a um, solution that addresses that inefficiency holistically, makes the end customer more successful, shifts power to both the OEM as well as the the end customer. And I'm, I'm finishing my monologue right here by saying, and that's where it's interesting because everybody in that supply chain, everybody that is part of the process can take the lead, but you have to move. That, you know, um, it's a great monologue, by the way. When, um, you know, from my history, when I was, uh, I was over in Silicon Valley when the uh, whole internet broke and lots of people were talking like this and they were saying, you know, it's totally radical you know, the disintermediation, the people who weren't talking about the technology, uh, they were talking about the disintermediation. You know, you can book your own airline ticket. You can buy, you can buy a, a book. It started off as a book. You can buy anything that's digital. Now it's anything that's physical. But it was, it seems to me that that was a pretty simple disintermediation of the supply chain. You were basically disintermediating maybe one or two, you know, blockbuster with the shops or, or, or whatever. And what you're really saying now is that the thing about um, IoT is one of the enablers, and you have a lot of other ones like AI and whatever, but assets, the assets as a service, is that, is that it's actually mass disintermediation. I mean, your point about there's no service company, it's because you are not just uh, disintermediating the, the supply chain of you sell it to A, maybe a distributor, A, a sells it to B, B is a reseller's. Uh, B sells it to C, C is the end user. You sell direct. You also charge for it on a per usage basis. But you, but 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 it's other things as well. It it's you know there is no independent service company because you're getting the data all the way back as the manufacturing company. You're getting the data. That means that your supplier can remotely diagnose uh, the device, find out what's wrong with it uh, before they fix it. I mean, I my, I explained this to my wife and she says, well, why doesn't that happen here? We have a a contract with uh, British Gas here in the UK. They actually don't just sell gas. They are, they'll do maintenance for all your equipment in your house. They advertise that on TV. But the way the process works is that something breaks, dishwasher, say. You phone them. They send somebody out, scheduling and all that hassle. They then look at it and say, yep, it's broken. <laughs> we know that. That's why we called you. And they say, oh, I think it's, th- I think it's this. Right, I think it's this. Okay, I'll be back. Uh, then you get another appointment. The guy appears maybe two weeks later with a part, and you hope he's got it right. Well, the point about that is that 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 if the device was smart, and you know our dishwasher has a controller in it. I mean, it 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 has lots of electronics in it. You could actually remotely diagnose and actually arrive with the part, and and that simple con- content of of um, uh, taking mass amounts of money out of the uh, warranty process is an adjacent disintermediation of the supply chain. And as you say, we're now looking at radically new business processes, uh, simplification of manufacturing, simplification of supply chain, simplification of warranty, simplification of marketing. Because if you can get data back from every customer on how they're using every product, you actually know which features they're using, which features they're not using. So you can actually manufacture 
simpler products and only sell certain products to certain customers because you know they they only want they're the only ones who want those features. So it seems like what we're embarking, going back to what you said earlier, we have no idea what's going to happen other than it appears to be much bigger than what has happened so far. Yeah, and I, and I think that that is really really important because it means that this will impact in you know some markets pretty significantly you know manufacturing as an example or what you just mentioned building management building controls building maintenance if you look into these markets it's fascinating because you have you know 20000 players in these markets right why because the markets are fragmented fragmentation leads to inefficiencies and now you use technology and other means to address the inefficiencies and you do it at scale, you will consolidate these markets. You will see what we saw in tech, the winner takes it all mentality and approaches and results because you can do things more efficiently. You will have a better price whilst also having a better service. And it's impossible for smaller micro players, service companies in that example, to cope. So you will see a massive shift in these markets um, if you deploy your assets wisely and correctly. But you need new assets, right? Back in the days, you had a brand. Back in the days, you had a balance sheet. Back in the days, you could afford doing things. The enabler that you just talked about earlier, technology, is certainly a really important enabler, specifically in the context of IoT. But we should not forget it's also about free capital. Everything we do around um, pay-per-use models, equipment as a service, industrial subscription, whatever the headline is you're using, it's only possible because money is for free, right? And nowadays, you know, we talked about Minigree before. One of the USPs they had was the balance sheet, you know, 230 billion balance sheet. You can take a lot of risk for that money. You know, look at some of the really aggressive and really large hedge funds. You know, how much do they have under management? You, you see that USP is starting to become less important. And that, that is something you see throughout all industries. And my biggest concern when I talk to proud traditional companies is they don't understand the shift in value when it comes to the assets that they have. I'm not saying they don't have value. They have Customer, they customers, they have access to customers, knowledge, experience, talent. They have a great starting position, but they focus sometimes on the wrong, in brackets, outdated assets. And this is, you know, you um, just talked about your example in, with your building. Another employee, former employee of yours, John Clifford, you know, who you know, you know, addressed that problem specifically in the building management with Learn. Said, screw this, right? Process that, that Nick just explained is inefficient. So I'm introducing guaranteed building performance as a service to the market. And I'm taking out all of these inefficiencies and making my you know, customers more successful. And, and the, the power is in the simplicity of the offering, not in the simplicity of the technology, but the offering. Exactly. And I spoke, uh, you know, John would be uh, probably a, a great guy for a future uh, podcast, but maybe give a little uh, preview, perhaps, if we can get John on. I did speak to John again, yeah, and he was part of the Cisco crew back in the day. 
And I was absolutely fascinated by what he did. It was very, it, it was, it was so elegant in its simplicity, very similar to the way you describe your business. And, and, and I think that's a pattern in general for successful uh, businesses. They're just simple and you just get what they do. And he, he said, yeah, he said 20,000 people maintain buildings. And what assets do they have? Well, they have customers, but they also have a lot of engineers, field engineers. And it's, it's inherently inefficient. So by buying a couple of companies and just putting some smart technology in and connecting the legacy assets, you totally transform the model. You just completely disrupt it. Uh, and by the way, you've got a field sales force already there. They're just called engineers. And the other thing I was thinking of as you were saying it is that is this issue of fragmented fragmented industries are ripe for disruption. And I think that's always been true. Um, in you know in in our own world in IoT, one of the messages that we give to customers, um, uh, and you know this because we partner together, but but one of the messages is look this the cellular market, the mobile network operator market is actually one of the world's last great fragmented industries. I mean, there's 825 mobile network operators. They all have proprietary SIMs. They're all saying, put my SIM in, and I can give you a bit of roaming, but not complete roaming. And, and so basically, it's an industry that's built from the players out. But when you look at it from the customer in, the customer just wants connectivity. And so you know that was the brilliance of our founders not me, I, I came in after this, but the brilliance of our founders to say, the only way to solve that fundamental lack of interoperability, which leads to uh, uh, incomplete connectivity or, or added costs because you've got to swap SIMs all the time, is to actually abstract the problem in, into an independent layer and have a, like a super aggregator in the cloud that will bring all the players together. And when you do that, you enable totally new business models like the ability to have a global product that has connectivity, it, which is a completely different concept to which mobile network operator should I choose and uh, based on a proprietary model. So I think that all, all industries, and I've said this before, all, all industries uh, start off, and especially tech, start off as proprietary, and ultimately it's user demand that forces interoperability and standards. And when you get interoperability and standards, that's actually when the mass adoption occurs, and that's what disruption is. The, the, you, you, uh, you have a really, really good point here, and, and I would like to to complement what you just said. You know, when it comes to the brilliance of of your founders, uh, and I would like to add one thing: when you talk to the big telcos, and you talk about IoT and innovation, you're right; it's about selling SIM cards. But what it's really about is protection. You know, oh, I can't do this, you know, around roaming, you know, because I make a lot of money with roaming. Oh, I can't do this because it's a really important revenue stream. Oh, I can't do this because it's a it's a barrier, a market protection. You asking a different question, which is like, what do these companies out there need? Yes. And then you solve the problem. So if you flip this around in an ideal world, you and I would not be needed because the innovation would come from the incumbents. That was never the case with a few exceptions, typically younger companies, right? Not companies that are 50, 60 years old, because they think inside out. Yes. While innovators think outside in. Yes. And, and <laughs> I, uh, I used to say in the first wave of the innovation that if you actually uh, want to know how a company will behave, uh, talk to their CFO. And people said, oh, what do you mean? Because it's the point that you're making. 
Um, if, if you look at, you know, when the first wave of the internet happened and, and you know, using this as a story to, to reaffirm what's, what's happening or not happening now, when the first wave of the internet happened, certain companies embraced the cloud and certain companies didn't. And actually, interestingly, uh, uh, certain tech companies went to cloud and certain tech companies didn't. And there was a complete change in the pecking order of those that did. And you think, why did certain really big tech companies not embrace the cloud, internet, uh, et cetera? Because they, they were in that business anyway. And the answer is because their current revenue was coming from the legacy products. And so all the behavior, all the management systems, all of the controls, all of the incentives, all of the commission was all geared around the management, uh, sorry, the, the, the revenue flow from existing products. And, you know, when you and I were at Cisco, that was called boxes. And, you know, it was really hard uh, to, do, to, to do change management uh, to go from uh, products to annuities. And, and even though everybody intuitively, of course, they got it. They're all smart. They're smart as hell. But it's really, really difficult, which gives the, the startups an inherent advantage because they don't have a legacy. You know, it's the, you know, God built the world in seven days, but he didn't have an install base uh, to, uh, to begin with. <laughs> um, and, and that's why, again, going, I think Munich Re have actually brilliance because they are a very big, I mean, they're a huge top five, I believe. Uh, they're massive, right? But what they did, I think, brilliantly is, they were and are aware of their strength, of course, but they also know who they are and who they are culturally. So when we, we, we had, it was not the only acquisition offer that we had, but what was really attractive to me was that they said from the get-go, if we buy you, we are not going to integrate you. I mean, you would die, right? I mean, if, yeah. you, if we integrate you in some of the oldest company in the world, I mean, you, you would die a terrible death. And um, that understanding and that self-reflection, you know, I have a lot of respect for, right? Because you, I mean, absolutely be aware of your strength, but be aware of your, you know, weaknesses as well. Then you make the best choices, right? And that is, that self-reflection, you know, is, is something that is extremely healthy when it comes to business questions in general, right? And as you just said, intrinsically, a lot of the executives know what the right thing would, would be. And that's why, why I'm so excited about the you know, market transformation in general, because there's a lot of reasons why they can't do it. It's as simple as a paycheck, right? I mean, you incentivize your people to do certain things. Yeah. And this starts with the board. The board incentivizes the executive team, and then it flows down. Changing a system like this will take years. Yes. And in years, you can build pretty successful, massive, disruptive companies. Yeah, and you can, and you can in this business, you can go out of business in months. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I always enjoy chatting to Joseph, and, and um, we could go on for hours, but we won't. I, I, why don't we sort of bring this to a conclusion by a couple of questions uh, I really wanted to ask you. Where's all this going to go? I mean, let's, let's get the crystal ball out and stare at it. I mean, the obvious answer is we don't know. But if we had to guess... Um, uh, the disruption that we're seeing is, is huge. It's, we've talked about the fact that it's actually many times bigger than the first level of disruption uh, that we saw. Let's just use the, the internet as, as the trigger for that. So that in itself is kind of scary. We talked about companies going out of business and new companies rising up. 
Um, and um, we talked about the inability of, of, of big companies to embrace the change and fragmented industries that need to be uh, drive interoperability and standards, particularly with regard to IoT. What's your view of, other than the fact that it's a huge market opportunity for companies that are in this space, um, what's your view of, of, of where this all could go? Um, is, do you see radical disruption um, and uh, uh, new, new companies rising to the fore as leaders? attacking the large incumbents, or do you believe that the large incumbents or certainly a percentage of them uh, can embrace this and uh, thrive? Um, the, the way I see this is almost like a waterfall. I think the driving force is vertical integration, you know, simplifying the process chain that we just discussed. Ten players today, two players in the future. You know, easier way of describing vertical integration. The vertical integration will lead to consolidation of hugely fragmented market into a winner-takes-it-all mentality. So where you have 20,000 players, 10,000 players, you might have 10 in the future. Where you have 200 OEMs, you might have three, all of them offering outcome-based services, pay-per-use, pay-per-part, just name it. That will change the landscape pretty significantly. It will have a huge impact on the GDP of industrial countries such as UK, France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, you know, companies with a strong industrial manufacturing backbone will either win and strive or suffer. I think some of them will suffer because they don't move quickly enough, which will lead to a shift of wealth to fewer companies. Um, the, the general wealth of you know, specifically in Europe of very wealthy countries such as Germany, the average wealth will go down. We will have significantly more unemployment as we're not moving. We are fat. We are lazy. We're chief worry officers. We're not moving quickly enough. And that's true for Europe in general, I think. And um, to summarize, you know, that statement, you know, it's, it's not a surprise because it, it happens constantly, you know, 500 years, 500 years ago, China was the global market leader. They were the marine leaders of the world. And then um, the Netherlands and the UK started to build ships for global trade. And then, you know, the Chinese said, you know, these ships are too expensive. And they became fat and lazy. And then, you know, 100 years later, they were broke. Now, you know, fast forwarding 400 years, they're hungry again. They're aggressive again. We are lazy. We are fat. So it's a back and forth. We shouldn't be surprised because it happens in history all the time. But the human race is interesting because we don't believe what we don't like, right? Even if there's evidence. Right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's how I see it. Nobody likes change. Wow, that's a big subject to finish on. That sounds like we've got two or three future podcasts there. And we're not talking about disruption of um, uh, supply chains. Uh, we're talking about disruptions of com companies disruptions of industries and and potential disruption of countries to do with their attitude of of who the winners are going to be uh in the future and the whole issue of the emergence of asia and that's something which um we're very aware of we doing a lot of work uh in asia it is incredible what they're doing and the and the insight that they have uh out there they're already thinking about what this is going to mean especially as all the products are made out there uh, from an IoT point of view, you know, the embedding of the connectivity in the product 
as a feature, not a SIM card, which, because, uh, you know, with the iSIM is going to go into the module, there isn't going to be a SIM card in the future. That is going to happen. Uh, and they're putting that module onto the PCB of an IoT product. That isn't going to happen in the West. That's going to happen in the, in, in, in the East, the low-cost manufacturing, which is an incredible asset that they bring to bear on this whole issue because inherently the products that they're making, they're the ones that will be capturing the data and transmitting the data. So lots of issues there um, in the future and some very, very innovative business models coming out of the East. But unfortunately, Joseph, we have to leave it there. I normally ask people for um, who else you could recommend for the podcast, but you've already uh, said around uh, John at Learned uh, around the uh, facilities buildings management. So I think we've probably pick up on that. And I also sometimes say, tell me one thing about you that, that, that people don't know. And you open with that, ruined my ending because I did, for all the years I've known you, I didn't know the story about your parents and the uh, bakery. And that is such a nice story. So it, 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 I have to ask you, how the hell did you earn enough money in two years? If I got it right, quit school at 16, became an entrepreneur, bakery gone bust, price of bread dropped. Uh, your first experience of disintermediation and managed by a house in two years, if I've got that right. Yeah. What did you do? Uh, trying to focus on an offering that the market needed at that time. And this is, you know, this is going back a few years now. Um, you know, this is the time of UUNet, um, if you remember them. Yeah, I do. And security was not a topic back in the days, right? So, you know, people were connecting networks and systems and they did not introduce barriers or security mechanisms uh, into these systems. So even a person who had as little talent as I could um, add value when it came to security. So my, my first two companies were security companies. Um, the first one was a service company. That's where, you know, that subsidized the house, so to speak. And the next one was a security product company. And uh, I was just lucky enough that uh, timing was my friend. Let's put it that way. It's amazing how many really, really successful people are, are humble and claim that it was uh, uh, luck and timing. Um, and I think the rest of us know that there's probably another ingredient as well. But I won't embarrass you by uh, focusing on that. Instead, I'll finish here. Thank you so much, Joseph, for your insights and your vision. Congratulations on your uh, model. And of course, selling the company and uh, and the disruption that you are uh, now driving as part of uh, the Munich Re Group as, as CEO of Relayer. And uh, for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this this episode. Certainly, I did. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. Uh, there's so much we could unpack for future episodes uh, there. But in the meantime, um, uh, tune in again uh, for the IoT Leaders podcast. We will have more guests on sharing their insight their experiences uh, and their stories indeed of um, their life and uh, what they've learned around digitization and IoT. Joseph, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to IoT Leaders, a podcast brought to you by SI. Our team delivers innovative global IoT cellular connectivity solutions that just work helping our customers deploy differentiated experiences and disrupt their markets. Learn more at si.com. You've been listening to IoT Leaders, featuring digitization leadership on the front lines of IoT. Our vision for this podcast is to be your guide to IoT and digital disruption, helping you to plot the right route to success. 
We hope today's lessons, stories, strategies, and insights have changed your vision of IoT. Let us know how we're doing by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and recommending us. Thanks for listening. Until next time.